Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, October 29th, 2014. Uh, wrapping up October, we have uh, Grand Rounds next week, Disasters and Emergencies, What a Pediatrician Should Know, uh, the team from Special Medical Services uh, from the state of New Hampshire. And later in the month, we will have uh, an, another talk about head injury, uh, probably from Richard Greenwald. November 12th, we are going to have a state of the chat address. So hopefully any and all participants can come join us and hear about our Imagine Chat process. Um, judging uh, the audience in the, in the room today, uh, today's speaker probably will need no introduction, but Sholene will provide a brief introduction of Dr. Duhem. Uh, I just want to share something. Hopefully any of you who've driven to work in the past couple of days have seen the number $705,000 and counting, which is yes which you all and many Chad heroes earned uh, at the Hero event on Sunday. So um, that is going to have half of which is going to go to the Five East Pediatric Adolescent Inpatient Unit Refresh, and the rest will uh, uh, spread good work and good, good cheer to the, rest of the, to the rest of the hospital. So thank you all. And uh, without further ado, Charlene and, and Dr. Duham. I'm going to keep this brief. Um, so for many of you, Tina DeHame needs no introduction. She is a pediatric neurosurgeon extraordinaire and was here for many years until she was stolen away uh, by Mass General, which she likes to blame on me for some strange reason. Um, she did a lot of her uh, training in Pennsylvania. And I, we, we always talk about where people go to med school and then where they trained. And I don't think anyone remembers it. But uh, what I'd like to say is that she's been a friend and a mentor, and her list of accomplishments, publications, and awards is far too long to go into here. So I will let her start her talk. Thanks, Charlene. And it's really great to be here and see so many familiar faces. Um, you don't really change when you go from place to place. You're the same person. You get some more wrinkles and some more bags and that kind of stuff. And that's going to happen to all of you. So uh, I do miss the fresh New Hampshire air. And this, this is the view from my window uh, when I was here. And look at that. You can see the reflection. Somebody's taken that picture. I think it's me. And that's what I got to look at every day. And here's what happens when you go to the city. This is what you see. <laughs> that's the view out my window. That's a parking garage. That's what I look at every day. I miss you guys. So what I have done is taken a picture of that first view, and I've blown it up and I've taped it to my window and I think about it every single day. The state house is there's a gold dome of the state house. This is what it looks like. You can't see it because it's so grimy. Anyway, other than that, uh, Boston's great, uh, but you are all in my hearts uh, forever and uh, I still consider myself part of you in some way, shape or form for whatever that's worth. Um, so here's what we're going to cover. Uh, I'm going to zip through this pretty fast because when I give this sort of a talk, usually I don't hit on what people really want to know. And so I've tried to make this short enough that I leave time for people to ask me, well, what are you supposed to do about 3% saline at the end? Uh, and I'm just going to gloss over a lot of it uh, at the beginning. But here's what we're going to talk about. Um, some of this, those of you who have heard me talk on this topic uh, uh, have heard before, but it, it's an update. So terminology and classification of head injury, how head injuries occur, what mechanisms cause what injuries in what age child. 
Um, some newer algorithms for initial triage and management. Uh, probably you have your own. I'll tell you how we do it, and then we can compare notes. Um, some national studies to improve management. What are we doing to try to make things better? And then the topic that most pediatricians are really uh, bothered by uh, are the issues of concussion. So I'm going to um, give you a somewhat <coughs> cynical view of my view of concussion. So that hopefully will um, uh, stir up some controversy, and we can uh, talk. And then I'll go out and have coffee afterwards. Okay, so. So the, the title of this talk is What are the Knowns and the Unknowns in Head Injury? And, and I'm going to um, cut right to the chase at the beginning. There's, there's a lot more we don't know than what we do know. And in fact, the things that people think they know, oftentimes they don't really know. So um, there's a lot of work still to be done. Uh, and what I'm going to leave you with, I hope, is not uh, just despair and, and uh, you know uh, nihilism that we don't know anything. There are things that are known. But the strength of that evidence here in the world of comparative effectiveness and evidence-based medicine, uh, as, as many of you probably are aware, is pretty weak for most of what we do in head injury. So I'm going to, I hope, give you some hope that there are uh, efforts afoot to improve that situation. So let's talk about classification. Even when we talk about how do you describe head injury, what's important to use for categorization um, of head injury. We have not, un we have not uh, decided this as a field. So the three classic ways are by what we call pathoanatomic type, and this is what you get on a radiology report or an autopsy report, which is the where and what, such as the form of the term epidural hematoma. Epidural is where it is, hematoma is what it is, and there's a lot of examples of this when you think about how we talk to one another about what kind of head injury somebody has. Um, you, you also see uh, pathophysiologic descriptors like there's brain swelling or there's you know cerebral edema, those kinds of descriptors pathophysiologic uh, when we talk among ourselves. Then there's the classic categorization or classification of head injury by severity. And this is the old mild, moderate, and severe. This is largely by Glasgow Coma Score. We're going to touch on this in a little more detail. And the takeaway message here is that we're moving away from this. This has, uh, it has served its usefulness, and we still use these terms, but there's a lot of problems with these terms. And so um, the field, by and large, is trying to get away from this mild, moderate, and severe descriptor. And then finally, for I heard Rick Greenwald is coming. Rick's a colleague and collaborator of mine, and uh, people in bioengineering are interested in mechanism. The other group of people that are interested in mechanism are prevention people who are trying to keep kids safe on playgrounds, on bicycles, in cars. Uh, and so the mechanism classifications have to do with the forces involved and largely are generally grouped in impact and inertial types of forces. And we'll talk about this in a bit more detail. So that's classification. How do, we, how do we describe the clinical scenario, the clinical appearance of a patient who's had a traumatic brain injury? Uh, how do we assess them? Well, the classic way that you all learned was the Glasgow Coma Score. And for those of you who you know, don't do this every day, it's designed, it was originally designed not to assess a given individual and follow them over time, which is how we use it, but it was really designed to compare the acute severity of injury among different centers so that if center X had a mortality of 30% and center Y had a mortality of 15%, people could actually say, well, it's not that you're doing something different, it's that your case mix was different. And so that's what the original purpose of the GCS was uh, for. As you know, it's broken into eye-opening, motor, and verbal subscores. You get three for just showing up. 15 is as good as you can do. 
And that's where this mild, moderate, and severe categorization came from. Um, the problem with the GCS is that it really misses a lot. It really was designed as a quick and easy way to see how severely somebody was injured by assessing basically their level of consciousness. It was never designed to assess if somebody got uh, a, a splitting mall to the head right in the motor strip and was paralyzed on the other side, you have a GCS of 15, that's as good as it gets if you're paralyzed but you're talking and you're awake and you can follow commands. And so it's less useful also since there's been very good pre-hospital care and people come in sedated, intubated, and paralyzed. So uh, GCS has, um, has serious limitations in today's world when you're trying to assess these things. It doesn't test a patient's strength, it doesn't test the symmetry of the exam, and it doesn't always answer the question of whether somebody is likely to get in trouble in the short term, which as clinicians is what we want to know. Um, Dartmouth was where we, we started uh, <coughs> testing this out. We uh, designed it at, uh, in, in Philadelphia, but this uh, so-called infant face scale was really um, uh, gotten off the ground here at Dartmouth. This is a GCS alternative, and it was designed specifically for trauma, although it can be used for mental status in general. And it's designed with the premise that the cortical activation in children as a sign of how healthy your cortex is, is manifest by whether a baby will actually show facial expression, grimace, and cry to noxious stimulation. And there are several advantages to this, one of which is you can do it even on babies who are intubated. So this is what we currently use at my hospital, and I don't know if you still use it here, but this is where it was piloted. So we've talked about two of the three ways people categorize or classify head injury. We've talked about pathoanatomic, where and what. We've talked about injury severity by uh, acute clinical exam. And let's briefly touch on mechanism. The idea of trying to understand and predict what might happen to a patient uh, in the future based on what the history is, uh, uh, was of their mechanism of injury comes from the premise that the type of force uh, determines the type of injury that you're going to get. And there's some truth to this, although it's probably oversimplified. The uh, dichotomy or uh, breakdown of forces into contact forces and inertial forces has a lot of utility. Uh, contact forces, that is, your head is struck by or strikes something, uh, give you injuries on the surface, and the greater the force, the deeper from that surface the forces penetrate. And then the inertial forces are what happens when your brain moves within your skull because typically your head is in motion and stops and your brain keeps going. And those typically give you diffuse injuries. And those range from things like diffuse axonal injury at the severe end of the spectrum to concussion on the milder end of the spectrum to things like subdural hematoma, which sounds like a focal injury, but it occurs because of the inertial force applied to your brain where your cerebral parenchyma moves and your vessels are um, uh, tethered and so they tear. So um, the reason that this dichotomy can be confusing to people is they think it's either or that you have either a contact injury or an inertial injury. But of course, in most mechanisms, you have both. Your head stops suddenly against something, and your brain keeps moving. And so you have a combination of both contact and inertial forces. Now, what I believe is the, the case is that no one of these three classification systems for traumatic brain injury is sufficient. And as clinicians, it's the constellation of the history, including the mechanism, the physical exam, including the Glasgow Coma Score or the infant face scale, and the rest of the exam, like symmetry, uh, and the imaging, which helps you as the clinician predict 
what complications this patient is likely to develop, and you can intervene to proactively avoid them. So let's go over some examples of each of these concepts. Knowing the history and knowing what the mechanism was will help you predict the injury type because the two are linked. They're not perfectly linked, but they're well linked. So in a young child, uh, we know from experience and from prospective studies and retrospective studies that a fall of about um, under four feet typically will lead in a child to no injury or if they're gonna have an injury, they're likely to have a linear skull fracture, a ping pong or smooth depressed fracture in a toddler that hits a sharp surface uh, or and or an epidural hematoma, which in fact is a serious injury. Um, uh, fall less than four feet is less than shoulder height, so these are the typical household falls off a bed, a changing table, a chair, and so forth. But once a, a child is being carried by a parent up at shoulder height, now we're talking about a fall that's typically about four feet. Once you get to four feet and above, um, which includes that type of fall, falls off of balconies, falls off of bunk beds, falls downstairs, which most often are a combination of small falls, but sometimes children fall directly down the stairs or off the side of the stair um, staircase. And now you get into sports and recreational injuries, there's more force. And so the injuries are going to be more forceful, uh, requiring injuries, such as all the things in category, the first category, plus now you have enough um, uh, focal force and diffuse force to cause things like basilar skull fractures, de true depressed skull fractures, focal subarachnoid hemorrhage, contusions, and once in a while if you're unlucky and hit it just right, you can have a focal, uh, what we call a contact subdural, which can be life-threatening. Now what really gives you bad injuries, you all know this from your experience, it's things with wheels, speed, and height. So now we're talking about motor vehicles, whether the child is a pedestrian, a passenger, on a bicycle, on a scooter, on a skateboard, uh, on uh, inline skates, something that has wheels and speed. And of course, we're also talking about ATVs. Um, and now also you get into uh, here uh, the forces that are involved with downhill skiing, ski jumping, and s snow recreation that gets you at high velocity and high height. So once you get to those forces, you now you're talking about subdural hematoma and diffuse axonal injury in addition to all the contact and inertial forces at the lower ends of the spectrum that we covered. So why is it, since we're supposed to know so much about head injury, and we're talking about the knowns and the unknowns, how come even though we have all these classifications, no one classification system is sufficient? Um, and here's an example of when, if you classify these injuries as uh, mild on the severity spectrum, they can still be life-threatening on the pathoanatomic spectrum. So here's some examples of injuries that are all mild, that is, there was not a, high, a low Glasgow coma score, these children regained consciousness promptly and so forth. And every one of them is an epidural hematoma with contact injuries. We typically think of contact injuries as somewhat less severe than bad inertial injuries, but we're really talking apples and oranges. So here's a 10-month-old that fell off from the parent's bed onto a wooden floor, cried right away, uh, put down for a nap, and then a few hours later when he didn't wake up for the nap, the mom realized something was wrong, and that's an enormous epidural hematoma, which was evacuated, and the child had a little bit of deficit but did quite well because the injury to the brain itself, the primary injury, which we'll cover in a moment, wasn't severe. Here's what we were talking about with high, higher forces. This is a 13-year-old hit by a car while riding a bike in a parking lot. So not going fast, the car wasn't going fast, but still more force. We're talking wheels and a little more height. 
She was briefly unconscious, then she was awake but started to vomit, and um, by the time she got to, this, uh, to the local hospital, she was getting sleepy. She had that big epidural that you see with the arrow, but with that much force, as the clinician, you have to think this is higher force, this is not just a low height fall, there was a little bit more speed, velocity, uh, and impact force involved, and so you have to look for and anticipate that she's also going to have contusions, potentially, and in fact, they're hard to see, but on the other side of her head, you can see some little dots. That's going to be a contusion that's going to blossom over time. So knowing the mechanism, the history, the story, the exam, you can start to predict what you might to get might get you in trouble. Besides the obvious epidural, you're going to have more force and more injury. Here's a four-year-old uh, classic story on a swing and fell backwards. Why do they always fall backwards off swings? And uh, they get a skull fracture over the back of the head where they hit, and they look fine right away. And then the next day, they get sick. And that's because what this is is a venous epidural. This is not an arterial epidural like you get when you tear your middle meningeal artery. And this evolves more slowly over time. Uh, but it's a serious location because it's in the posterior fossa. And children with this injury will come in with acute hydrocephalus and relatively quick deterioration once they get to the point where they can't compensate for this mass lesion anymore. So let's talk a little bit about what causes the damage. What are we trying to prevent in head injury? Well, I like to classify it into three categories. Primary, and you, you've all heard of primary and secondary brain injury, but I like to think of, it, think of it as primary, and then delayed primary, and then secondary. And I think that thinking about it this way helps you break down in your mind what, as the physician, you're trying to prevent and treat. So the primary injury is what happens at the moment of impact. And this is a laceration in the brain. This happens from a small child with a malleable skull falling a significant height. This is a classic story for a fall out a window, which is what this child had. And at the moment of impact, there's enough force to tear that skull, uh, tear, tear that, um, uh, uh, fracture the skull and tear the dura because the skull sweeps in. And then because it's, uh, because it's malleable, it bounces back out. So when you get the child, there's a fracture, and it's displaced a little bit, but not as much as it was displaced at that moment of impact. So that in-sweeping of that cracked edge of the skull lacerates the brain. That's a primary injury. You're not going to fix that. It's done. And uh, this is a classic appearance on an MRI of a brain laceration from a skull fracture from that mechanism. Now, delayed primary um, is what I like to think of as Force has been applied, but it hasn't killed your cell yet. It's damaged your cell, but your cell's not dead yet, like in the Monty Python thing, but I won't say it because some of you are too young. Um, but uh, what, what the idea is here is that the cells are injured, but they're not lethal yet, and over time, they bite the dust, basically. This is the part of injury that your neuroprotectants and your physiologic control are designed to manage. So if you're in the intensive care unit and you're trying to keep the blood pressure at a certain level and you're trying to keep the oxygen at a certain level and you're trying to keep the sodium at a certain level and so forth, you're trying to prevent seizures, that's because you're trying to prevent those cells that are saying, uh-oh, I'm hurt from going all the way to cell death. So that's what most medical interventions are designed to prevent. Okay. Then finally, there's true secondary uh, injury. And what this is, in my uh, mind, is that this is parts of your brain that weren't injured at all. They were fine. They said, oh, you hit the other side. Yeah, I'm OK. But then over time, if you let the consequences of the injury, whether they're physiologic consequences or mass lesion consequences, progress, you're going to damage tissue that was not damaged at all. This is where surgery comes in. Because what surgery is trying to do is protect your brain from expanding mass lesions or swelling that's going to now 
affect tissue that wasn't affected at all. Uh, physiologic control is helpful for that as well. So why do we know anything about head injury? Well, it's because these little uh, critters uh, gave their lives for all these papers that if we stacked them all up, they would not only fill this auditorium, they would probably fill your whole floor here because there's a gajillion papers out there of stuff that worked for neuroprotection in rodent models. But every one, when it was invested in by pharmaceutical companies and tested in enormously expensive double blinded prospective trials, every single one failed. So there have been now about 30 trials of this sort and not a single thing that worked beautifully in rats translated to better outcomes in humans. Well, why is that? You know, how come we don't, why is there such this big unknown in head injury? Well, because in fact, there were a lot of limitations to these trials and they're extraordinarily hard to do. But the biggest problem in human head injury trials is the heterogeneity of injury. It's like throwing a single drug at all cancer. And then guess what? It might help a few people with a specific type of cancer, but if you lumped every patient in the same uh, pool, it's gonna wash out because it isn't gonna affect and help everybody. And there's other reasons. But the past head injury trials mostly had inclusion based on that number one of the three classification schemes I talked about, which was injury severity based on this GCS mild, moderate, and severe category. And the problem is if you take everybody with a GCS eight and under, which is the classic severe head injury, they're gonna be every kind of head injury imaginable, just like the analogy to lots of different kinds of cancers. So the problem with these trials is that they mix together many types of injuries and many types of patients, different ages, different premorbid factors, different comorbidities at the time and after the injury, and the outcomes that they were looking at to see if wonder drug Z worked were very dichotomous outcomes. Patients typically in these trials were grouped as bad, which meant you were severely disabled or you died, or good, which meant you were pretty good all the way up to quite good. And so they had these large outcome categories and the expectation that a given drug thrown at a heterogeneous group of patients would change the outcome enough to be statistically significant was probably overconfidence. And so every trial failed. So what are some of the, so now I've told you all the bad stuff. What are some of the, what are some of the newer approaches or what are we trying to do now that we weren't trying to do five or 10 years ago? Well, one of the changes has been to try to base your management not just on severity, that is, like the old head injury management <coughs> algorithms that you saw a while ago that largely were adapted from these clinical trials that failed. It was a linear algorithm. It said if somebody comes in with a GCS of eight and below, you treat them with this and you put an ICP monitor in and you treat them with this and then you do that and then you do that and if their ICP is out of control, then you do this and so forth. And it was this sort of line, straight line. There was no branching of those algorithms to account for some of these differences that uh, we've, we've just covered. So here's a, a group of kids, all of whom have a GCS of eight or less. This one had a contusion from uh, falling off a motorcycle. This is a baby where, uh, some of you may remember this kid because this kid was in our PICU here at Dartmouth. I say R, see that? I still, I still feel like, uh, where a branch fell on the kid's head and got this enormous intracerebral hemorrhage. Some of you are shaking your head. You remember this, it was a terrible, terrible case and the baby died. This is a child uh, hit by a, um, a car on a bike and it's barely visible, but there's two little dots here. That's diffuse axonal injury. And this is a child with a huge acute subdural. These are four different children, all of, with, all of whom have severe head injury. These pathophysiologic injury types 
are all over the map in terms of what drug might help and what treatment might help, so no wonder. So what we're trying to do now is tailor our management to the specific pathophysiology that is likely to unfold with that given patient based on their pathoanatomic injury type, that where and what, not just their GCS of how quote unquote severe they are. So here's an example. We talk about intracranial pressure, and in the old algorithms, you went down this linear thing, and if the pressure was this, you did that. Well, not all intracranial pressure is the same. There's tolerated intracranial pressure, and there's bad for you intracranial pressure. So let me see if I can steer us in that direction here. What's tolerated by the neurologists down here in the front, uh, and they know this well, is global pressure without tissue shifts and not to a sufficient level that you stroke out and compress your blood vessels or your blood supply. So pseudotumor cerebri is a great example of tolerated intracranial pressure. Richard Morse can do an LP on some kid with an ICP of, you know, I don't know, some very high number that you, if, if suddenly you instilled pressure in my head and got me up to that level, I would not tolerate it. Uh, and that's because it's diffuse, it's distributed, it isn't compressing a vessel, and it doesn't cause tissue shifts. <clears throat> Similarly, in trauma, mass lesions, which are far from what we call the compression danger zones, which typically are things where if you squish the tissue against an edge, you're going to cause a stroke or damage to that tissue, usually by vascular compromise. So the falks, the one down the middle, the tentorium that separates the top and the bottom, and the foramen magnum, which separates your head from your body, these are all bad places to have tissue pushing because you will compress the tissue or its blood supply and infarct it. So that kind of tissue uh, uh, tolerance uh, does not, you don't have safety there. But if you have a mass lesion that's far away from those, you tolerate that. So here's some examples. This is a boy with diffuse axonal injury. He's waking up. If you have an, his ICP monitor has been removed. You see, that's when we used to shave a lot. But um, this kid is thrashing around. And if you had an ICP monitor in him, his ICP in millimeters of mercury would easily hit 40 and 50. If you treat that, you're treating something you don't need to treat because he's going to tolerate that. His mechanisms for pushing that pressure into his compensatory zones like his subarachnoid space and his back are good. And so he's not going to have tissue shift. He's not going to infarct his brain from those ICPs. Likewise, this is a little girl that fell off her bike and had this little epidural. It's far away from her falks. It's far away from her foramen magnum. It's far away from her tentorium. She's going to tolerate that. She could tolerate 40 cc's up there. And she's not going to have a tissue shift that's going to hurt her. So that one you can wait on. And you see in the scan next to it, it went away. This is a child that had big frontal contusions from an object uh, striking her. And then she struck the ground. And she has big contusions here where if they were in her temporal lobe, they'd be trouble. But in the frontal lobe, far in the, in the front, that is not going to cause tissue shift that's dangerous. So these are all ICP type things that are well tolerated. On the other hand, there is dangerous ICP, which we've talked about. And that is local or hemispheric swelling or a mass lesion near critical structures. So compression of vessels against edges, direct compression of critical tissue, um, like these, like the epidural hematoma that I showed you, but you also have to worry about the contusions on the other side because they may swell. Now you've got it coming at you from both sides towards your brainstem. That's danger. Um, uh, contusion in the back of the temporal lobe right next to the brainstem, that's trouble. And then if you get global intracranial pressure that's near your systolic intracranial pressure, uh, you can get in trouble there from just lack of perfusion of your brain. That typically happens as an epiphenomenon when you have wiped out your brain due to severe hypoxic ischemic insult, and it isn't clear that treating that in most cases is going to be very helpful to your outcome. 
So whose ICP is dangerous? It's not just by your um, Glasgow Coma Score. So those old linear algorithms where you come in and you look like this and you get that, really there are, there are branch points here. So I think the first branch point is whether the lesion is what we call swelling prone, maybe a better word would be deterioration prone, versus non-swelling prone. And you can predict with reasonable uh, guesswork uh, on arrival when the kid shows up in your ED or in your PICU based on several factors. The history, including the mechanism, the initial exam, more than just your GCS, and your imaging. So all three of those categorization schemes come to bear in how you predict what's going to happen to that patient. Let's divert a little bit because what we want to know in my field is who needs to go to the OR? So we're calling you up down in the ED and we're calling Maya Ruttman and saying, Maya, what do you got? And we want to know, do I have to go to the, do I have to get out of bed and come in and go to the OR? <laughs> so what surgery is all about is creating room so that blood, the mass lesion, or swelling, the contusions in their aftermath, doesn't lead to dangerous tissue shifts. We don't care so much about ICP per se. It's a specific type of ICP, dangerous ICP. That's what we're trying to get at. And what we're trying to do when we do surgery is prevent what we talked about that secondary injury, injury to tissue that otherwise would be okay if it didn't get squashed, okay? So this is an example. This is a classic child abuse injury where there was an acute subdural and the half the brain dies from that acute subdural by a mechanism we can talk about later that we are still uh, working on. Uh, and, and we take off the skull so that that brain, we're not going to fix that brain. We're going to let it swell out so it doesn't swell in and infarct the other hemisphere. And that has made a major difference in the management of this particular type of injury. This is a busy slide. You don't have to read it. The whole point of it is to say that swelling-prone injuries and brain swelling after trauma, it's not an event. It's not like you break your arm, you're done. It's, a, it's an illness. It's an evolution of an illness and a pathophysiologic set of cascades. And so we have a particular algorithm, a particular thing that we do for swelling-prone injuries that are going to swell. And this is just uh, kind of the overview. And then the question is, how do you decide who needs what? And this is, the, this is the scheme that we have developed and used, and this is uh, uh, used throughout our hospital for all ages, from, from children uh, up to elderly patients. Uh, and this is our head injury initial triage and management. So you see, uh, it's not linear. It's, you'll see in a moment it's branched. So what do we want to know? What do I need to know from my resident when they call me from the ED? I want to know the history, and I don't need to know the history of, like, you know, did, did you have uh, your inoculations or whatever. Here's what I want to know. I want to know, and they, they're trained to, 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 to do this very quickly. I want to know when did the injury occur, what was the mechanism, and when mechanism, it's not like MVA. I want to know what were the kinematics, what was the energy, what was the speed, what was the fall height. I need to know those basic facts so that I can start putting this into categories. I want to know if the patient struck the head. It's not uncommon. You must see it here at your level one trauma center. The patients show up, they're boarded, they're collared, they're sedated, they're paralyzed, and nobody knows if anybody saw them anything that suggests they hit their head or, as you'll hear, moved their legs. They come in, they're like a black box, right? So I want to know, is there evidence that there was a head strike? Uh, I want to know what was the best exam at the scene by the emergency, emergency providers? Uh, was there a loss of or change in level of consciousness? What was the GCS? Because they're trained to do this. It is useful. I don't mean to get rid of it entirely, but it's one piece of data. I want to know about asymmetry. Were the pupils asymmetric? Was the motor exam asymmetric? This is critical to understanding if you've got tissue shift. Um, I want to know if they move their legs. It drives me nuts when I, they come in and they're intubated and sedated and nobody can tell me if at the scene anybody saw this patient move their legs. And it's a source of missed injuries that shouldn't be missed. 
And then I want to know about what we call exacerbators. Was there apnea? Was there a history of shock? Was there prolonged extraction where you had no vital signs? Were there other injuries that likely cause hypotension? Was there a need for resuscitation? These so-called exacerbators are going to add insult to injury and change a non-swelling prone injury into a swelling prone injury, and it changes your expectations for what you have to do. Then I want to know what's the exam in our ER or in your ER or in the PICU? Uh, what was the exam, not just the GCS, but I want to know about motor, pupils, and other basic things about the exam. I don't need to know every single thing about the exam. And then we want to know about the imaging, not just what was done, but what was the timing of it. So if you, a lot of times kids get to CAT scanners where I am now in an urban area very quickly. You have the, the sort of uh, both advantage and disadvantage of having a longer time often between your injury and your first image. But I need to know that because if a kid has a temporal skull fracture and the first image was 30 minutes later, they still have a long risk period before a hemorrhage could show up. Whereas if it's six hours later, if they don't have a hemorrhage by then, they're almost certainly not going to have one. And then I want to know about whether I need to go to the OR. And there's a certain uh, phrasing that we use to answer that question. Once we have those data from those categories, we can now put you into a category to predict what's going to happen to you. Swelling prone or deterioration prone injuries and non-swelling prone. And what's in these categories? Acute subdural hematoma, not in an atrophic brain, rare in kids, but in uh, the elderly population that you know these were designed to also cover. If you have an acute subdural, but you're uh, elderly and on Coumadin, um, you know, you can have a pretty big subdural without causing tissue shift. Um, multifocal and large contusions, they're trouble. Temporal or posterior fossil lesions, just because of their location, they're close to critical tissue shift areas. High energy contact injury. I don't care whether you look sick or not. If you, had a, if you were ejected from a car, you got a high energy car, contact injury. If you got thrown 30 feet off an ATV, that's one too. Gunshot wounds are all swelling prone pretty much. And anybody that had any injury plus exacerbators, you have to predict they're going to swell. So who, who do you worry about less? Who's non-swelling prone? Pure diffuse axonal injury. If you have somebody with diffuse axonal injury, they may get a blip in their ICP on day one to two, and then they should be over it pretty much. If they're not, they got something else going on, usually a hypoxic event at the scene. An isolated focal lesion not near the brainstem or the falcs, like the ones I showed you. A chronic subdural hematoma, while you can get into trouble with those, if you have a big chronic subdural hematoma and you're not sick, you're unlikely to deteriorate immediately. And if you have an atrophic or encephalomalacic brain, which can happen in children who have had bad meningitis or encephalitis or have some other problem, uh, you have room to put stuff without tissue shift. So once you know all that, then you can go to management. And this is the scheme that we have for management. The first question is the surgical question. Is there a mass lesion which is causing symptoms right now or significant tissue shift right now, even if you're compensating symptom-wise, or with predictable worsening. Yes, you go to the OR. So now I have to get up out of bed and come in. If there's a mass lesion which doesn't cause those, we go down this path, the no path. And then the question is, irrespective of the fact you don't have to go to the OR right now, is there a swelling-prone injury with significant risk of increased ICP or dangerous tissue shift during the acute course, meaning in the next day or so? And if so, that patient may need to go to the OR for decompression to prevent those dangerous tissue shifts or get a ventriculostomy or at least an ICP monitor. So that's how you go down there. If none of these and your patient can be examined, you'll watch them. If the patient can't be examined because they need pain control for rib fractures, femur fractures, whatever else, they have aspiration with a need for a deep sedation, then they get an ICP monitor. So if they can't be examined, they go down the ICP.
monitor path. If they can, there are certain lesions that you can predict will progress and they get serial imaging. If not, they just get watched. And that's how it's, it goes. If they deteriorate, then I call Richard to do an EEG uh, or DIC so that we can see if they're having seizures, which is another cause of progressive uh, deterioration. So here's some examples. Here's a five-year-old beaten by his mother's boyfriend and dumped out the front steps. Horrible story. Came in with extensor posturing, fixed dilated pupils. Here's the acute CT. That is dangerous tissue shift, even though the subdural doesn't look big. Okay, That's a kid with that mechanism, with that story, with that image. That kid goes immediately to the OR, gets a hemicraniectomy, gets the subdural clot out. And what we were preventing with that was not the infarcts that had already ca been caused. These are herniation infarcts but we were protecting from secondary injury tissue that was not injured the first by that first event. And so this child actually did well and has minimal deficit, believe it or not, despite his strokes. That's because he's five years old. Here's an eight-year-old with a fall from a diving ladder. She was alert. She was watched. She didn't have focal findings. Her first scan was this. And then the follow-up rapid MRI, which I'll touch on in a minute, showed that the thing had gotten a little bit bigger. Now she had some headaches. She had vomiting. She went to the OR. Not immediately, because she went down the pathway where she was observed, got serial imaging, because this is one that can progress, and then went to the OR. So those are our schemes for initial triage and management, using all those categorizations together in a, a gamish to get some sense of what the pathophysiologic un unfolding of that injury is going to be over time. So how do we get better? How do we learn what works in traumatic brain injury? And what's the next generation of head injury research since all those trials failed? Well, it's been an effort by the um, uh, NIH and the NINDS, which is the one that does neurologic disease, to create these common data elements. Some of you in the neurosciences will know that uh, the NIH did these common data elements for other diseases like stroke and autism, uh, Alzheimer's disease, where the idea was if everyone collected the same data or at least used the same terms and, and collected data in a similar way, and we pooled it all, then we could create large cooperative databases and do comparative effectiveness research. Now, I put a picture of the Dartmouth campus on this slide because you guys were the founders of comparative effectiveness research and evidence-based medicine in many ways and contributed enormously to this approach. And this is really where the field of head injury is going, along with the many other fields. So current studies, uh, we have several ongoing. You may have some here that, that again, use the same kind of thing. Uh, the one that's taken most of my time is something called TRAC-TBI. And you know, to have a clinical trial now, you have to have an acronym. Uh, if you can't make it turn into a cute word, forget it. You won't even get funded. This one is Transforming Research and Clinical Knowledge in TBI, Traumatic Brain Injury, um, using, it's basically beta testing of the NIH common data elements for traumatic brain injury, which I worked on on the imaging ones and on the pediatric ones. It's 11 sites. It will enroll 3,000 children and adults uh, of all severities, all types of injuries. And then the idea is you pool all this data, and it's incredible the informatics that you can get. These, these patients also get gene, uh, they get gene uh, analysis, biomarker analysis, and very, very sophisticated imaging. It all goes into this incredible informatics platform that was put together by, guess who, the Department of Defense. They're good at informatics, and probably NSA too, but we don't talk about that. And, uh, and th this is push button. You can push the button and say, I want to know about all kids under the age of five with acute subdural hematoma with a GCS of this who had this much tissue shift, and I want to know who got mannitol and who got hypertonic saline, and it will spit it out in bar graphs with statistics. It's unbelievable. Um, so that's head injury across the board, all ages, all severities, all types um, in the United States. There's a similar trial ongoing in uh, Europe, and the two trials can talk to each other so we can pool all that data together. 
This one is for PICU uh, kids with ICP monitors. This is the DAPT. I don't know if you guys are a center for this or not. Uh, it's 26 centers. Pittsburgh originated this one. It's also based on the common data elements. Slightly different common data elements were chosen. Um, uh, and there's going to be 1,000 kids under age 17. To get into this one, you've got you to have the old classification of severe and have an ICP monitor, uh, and it's outcomes out to a year. And the, the basic questions being asked by comparative effectiveness research in this trial are things like, I just said, hypertonic saline versus mannitol, uh, PCO2 of this versus that, uh, prophylactic anticonvulsants versus not, all the stuff you wish you knew that none of these trials have really answered for us. So this is the approach to answering some of these basic questions. So what about basic science? Let's just digress there, because I've got to show a couple of slides on science. Um, so uh, what about the question of whether your brain is worse as, uh, um, when you're injured when you're young as opposed to an older child? And the answer is, again, topic here is what's known and what's known. It depends. We don't really know, but we know more than we used to. And it turns out it isn't that you're better when you're younger and worse when you're older or worse when you're younger and better than you're older. It depends on what specific question you're asking. And these are just some uh, slides that show some work that uh, started here at Dartmouth and that we've continued. Uh, Sabrina Taylor, who got her doctorate uh, from PEM uh, here uh, and came with us to Boston to finish that up. This is a lot of her work. And she looked at the question of whether age matters in repair mechanisms. She was looking specifically at neurogenesis or migration of immature neurons to try to heal your brain uh, when, it, uh, when it's injured. And uh, she did both human tissue, looking at children uh, with the help of um, um, some neuropathology colleagues, uh, uh, Brent Harris, who, who was here and is now uh, in DC, uh, and others to, to do this. And it turns out that Neurogenesis and migration of new neurons probably is a relatively minor factor in humans as opposed to rodents where it's gangbusters, uh, but it may play some, some effect, and that may be age-dependent. We're still learning about that. And Beth Costine, uh, who's a PhD in our lab, uh, has really looked into neurogenesis in these piglet models. How does it actually occur? What age does it occur in? And what happens to those cells over time? And these are just some uh, beautiful images of, uh, of her work. So the answer is about old versus young children. It depends. We know a little bit about differences in age, but um, it's not a simple yes or no, even in the world of concussion, despite what you read. So that's a good segue into concussion, which is what most people really want to know about. What do we know and what don't we know? Well, I like to not call it concussion. I like to call it the concussion spectrum, because I think when we use that word, we're talking about lots of different things. And many, many uh, disciplines have jumped on this bandwagon from you know, basic science to sports medicine to engineering to us in clinical neuroscience. My perspective is from down here. That's where we're talking about. But if you were up here, you might have a different point of view. So let's go over some concussion questions. I think I was supposed to provide questions for this. And I think I provided one, but I think I'm going to give you two here. So. Uh, concussion question number one, um, and we can do show of hands. Nobody ever raises their hand, but if we want to, we can try. True or false? There's good evidence that physical rest after concussion is important to your recovery. How many people think that's true? How many people think it's not true? How many people don't know? <laughs> ah, I like that. I like that. Good. Okay. Well, I hope by the end of this you'll know. All right? So uh, for those of you who can see, we're about split between people who said yes and no, and the biggest group was the don't know. That's just because you know I'm giving this talk. All right, concussion question two, true or false? Most cases of catastrophic injuries after a second impact, so-called second impact syndrome, are associated with brain hemorrhage. How many people think that's true? How many people think that's not true? 
Yeah, everybody thinks that not, that's not true. You know what? You're wrong. It turns out that the vast majority, if not all, second impact syndromes were subdural hematomas. And that's not understood in the public. They think it's a little concussion and you get a second concussion and you drop dead. Guess what? Those patients all had subdurals, masking as concussion. So I'm going to go over that in a minute because that's a widely misunderstood thing. Not everyone agrees with me, but I'm right. <laughs> So what is a concussion? What are we what are we talking about? Concussion used to mean one thing, now it means something else. You you know, you poor pediatricians, you I had a kid in our concussion clinic, I'm not kidding. She came in, she was hit in the head with a nerf ball. <laughs> and she had a concussion diagnosed. All right. So what has happened over the last decade is that the terminology has evolved. And there's so-called sports concussion. And they characterize, the people who are in sports medicine or do this for a living characterize this, that say they say they rarely lose consciousness. They usually have multiple impacts. Their symptoms may be delayed hours to days. This isn't what I was trained was a concussion. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just talking about terminology here. There's the so-called trauma concussion. That's what I was trained in. That's what you, know, you in trauma know and people in neurosurgery know. This is what we see in the ED and in the hospital. Uh, these are the kids, there may be multi-trauma, they might have been hit by a car, who knows. They almost always have a loss of consciousness. It's usually a single event, like the kid fell off the jungle gym, passed out, that's a concussion, okay? Do you understand that these are two different things? Or they may be parts of a spectrum, that's why we like to call it spectrum. But they may not be the same thing. These may be two entirely different clusters of pathophysiologic issues here. So that's why I like the word concussion spectrum. This is a paper that came out uh, that I uh, first authored with a lot of collaborators, many of whom were here at Dartmouth, that was the, one of the products of the football concussion study some of you know about where the helmets were instrumented. Uh, Hanover High did this, participated in it, and Dartmouth College and several other colleges. This work was, I think that Rick Greenwald, who's going to be your speaker, was a genius with this. Because this was the first time we could actually measure. Nobody knew how many hits these kids got. Nobody knew how strong these hits were. Nobody knew where they got hit. Nobody knew what positions were vulnerable. We know all that now. So in terms of sports concussion, this body of work, I think, was groundbreaking. Uh, and I'll talk to anybody who wants to know what the specifics that came out of the study were. But it has informed the whole field in a major way. So the goals for this part of the talk, which I'm going to end with, are to review guidelines, which is what many of you need to know. What am I supposed to do when the Nerf ball kid shows up in my office? Um, to review the content of several concussion guidelines briefly, to assess the quality of the data. That's what we do here at Dartmouth. That's what you, and hopefully me, do here at Dartmouth and other places, and provide recommendations for how to use this kind of information. Okay, so you all know there are so many of these guidelines out there. Right? There's like the AAN one, and there's the sports medicine one, and the Zurich guidelines, and you name it. There's just a few, but there's more than that. So as you know, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir here because I know everybody in this audience probably knows this. It's part of what you get when you get your orientation. You get three parts of your orientation when you come to DHMC how to avoid hitting a moose, how to recycle, and how to do evidence-based medicine, right? <laughs> Am I right? OK. So there's consensus documents. Consensus documents are what's most widely quoted in concussion. It's that Zurich Consensus Conference, which I'll talk about in a minute. These people are well-intentioned, smart people. They have a lot of experience. But it's a consensus conference. What does that mean? It's usually led by one discipline, primarily with a few others thrown in who they could get to come. Not, I'm not being critical here. It's just the facts. Um, they fill a need when there may not be much data. That people realize, look, we don't know what to do. Let's get together and try to figure this out. They may or may not be peer-reviewed in a rigorous way. Okay? Then, in contrast, there's the evidence-based medicine paradigm for guideline production. 
they try to, the format is trying to be objective versus biased or experiential when you make recommendations. They may have loose or strict inclusion criteria for what evidence they review. And they also may be one field or more than one field, okay? So they're kind of, they have a spread as well. However, what I want to say is that I've learned by being immersed in this that guidelines documents are generally very attractive to journals. They get published. Why? They sell journals. Why? Because people need to know guidelines. They need to know what to do. And so there's a lot of them out there. They have a low threshold for publication because they sell journals. Not to be cynical. That's just the facts. A little cynical. <laughs> okay, so let's go about evidence review guidelines. Well, it's a process. They differ from guideline to guideline, but they're stricter and stricter processes depending on who you're doing, um, which allows for objective review. I will tell you, having been involved in many of these, it takes a huge, and many of you are too, huge amount of work, time, and resources. You almost never get paid for it. You're volunteering. You go to meetings. You sit around tables. You eat calorie-laden food and get no exercise. But apart from that, it's a lot of fun. And um, it creates oftentimes a list of evidence which is weak and a list of gaps that should be filled in as research targets, but nobody ever reads about the gaps. They just read, what's the guidelines say, okay? They may promote standardization of care, which is great if your evidence is solid, but crummy if there's little evidence. And that's what happened with the early iterations that were not rigorous about head injury, particularly the first generation of the pediatric head injury guidelines, which sat in the PICU for years and basically said, this is an option, this is an option, this is an option. And people said, oh, it's in the guidelines. That means we're supposed to do it. And it didn't mean that. It meant somebody thought maybe you could do this, and there was no evidence to support it, but it got in the document whose name was guidelines, and everybody thought you were supposed to do it. So you know better than that, but lots of people don't. It's not clear if most practitioners fully understand what that term guidelines means. And I'm glad to be in an audience where I don't have to convince you. So what are guidelines trying to do in concussion? Couple of things, three things really. Number one, prevent second impact syndrome. It turns out that if you look critically at the literature and if you have had cases of second impact syndrome, the vast majority of them were small acute subdural hematomas just like this one. This is a football player, had a headache after his second hit in a game or I, maybe it was his first hit, I don't remember. But you know, they get hit on average. A, a college football player gets an average of three to 400 hits that are measurable, that means over 10 Gs, up to, most of them get hits of 100 Gs during a season, and up to about 150, 160 Gs. That's enormous, okay? So in a season of football, the average player in college gets three to 400 hits, and in some positions, they get 1,500 or 2,000 hits per season, okay? That's play, scrimmage, and practice. That's a lot of hits. So this kid was playing, he got a single hit, he had a headache, they pulled him, he came into our ED, here's an MRI, look at that subdural, okay? It doesn't look very impressive on the CAT scan. The subdural is seen better on special imaging, particularly MRI looking for it, and he had a headache for weeks because he had a small subdural. Now in the old days, those kids would be told, tough it out, go back in the game. They'd get another hemorrhage on top of this one. They've used up all their compensatory for the bad kind of ICP. They get acute ICP and they die or are disabled, okay? That's what second impact syndrome is. It is not a regular old garden variety, 99% concussion that gets another concussion, okay? There are rare exceptions and I think they're all wrong. I think they're just not well imaged. Okay, so that's number one, and that's what all the legislation is out there, the Zach Lystat laws, all the laws you have to do, it has to be cleared, but most of the public doesn't understand that this is what second impact syndrome is, and you can usually make the diagnosis uh, by the kid's symptoms. 
The second thing they're trying to do with concussion uh, guidelines about return to play are prevent prolonged physical, <coughs> cognitive, or emotional symptoms. The idea here is if you get two real concussions, you know, like not a hemorrhage, two hits close together, that somehow this may prolong your recovery or give you worse emotional symptoms and so forth. Nobody really understands this. There's fairly good animal data that, in fact, that may be the case. There's some pretty reasonable clinical data that may be the case, but we don't know how to prevent it. We don't know how long it takes. We don't know what's really going on inside your cells. We don't really get this. We do the best we can. And then the third thing that's real controversial is this dementia idea, this chronic traumatic encephalopathy picture. You know, there's a lot, a lot of controversy about that, and we don't have a clue who's vulnerable for that and how you prevent it. So all the laws, all the guidelines are really designed at number one, preventing second impact syndrome. And for that, they're reasonable, although we don't know why they're reasonable. We just know they are. Okay, so here's the Zurich Sports Concussion Consensus Conference. This is version four. This is their first, fourth concussion conference. This one came out in 2012 and was much more reasonable, in my opinion, than the early ones because they started to say, guess what, we don't really know. Here's how they diagnose it. It's basically symptoms, self-reported symptoms, uh, looking like you're foggy, feeling confused, and so forth. And then there's the whole sleep disturbance, cognitive disturbance thing. And finally, in version four, they backed off and they said, I hope I'm not offending anybody. Anybody participate in this? Like actually went to the conference? Okay, good. All right. I mean, because these are well-intentioned, smart people. They're doing the best they can, and that's what you do when you don't have much data. So what they say is, and this is funny to me because it's so contradictory right in the first couple of sentences. The cornerstone of concussion management is physical and cognitive rest. I'll go on that in a minute. Until the acute symptoms resolve and then a graded program of exertion prior to medical clearance and return to play. The cornerstone. Now look at the next sentence. The current published evidence evaluating the effect of rest, cognitive or physical, following sports-related concussion is sparse. So then they go and say, further research to evaluate the long-term outcome of rest and the optimal amount and type of rest is needed. So, there it, so they say right in the same paragraph, here's what you do, but there's no evidence to support it, okay? which is in fact true. So in contrast, the American Academy of Neurology, congratulations to our neurologists here, did an evidence-based review, not a consensus panel, evidence-based. They poured through. They had strict criteria. They did mesh searches. They had librarians working with them. They pulled everything they could by keywords and so forth from the literature, and they looked at really what does the evidence say, and here's what they said. Data are insufficient to show that any intervention, any intervention, vestibular therapy, cognitive rest, being your cell phone put you know, in your mom's uh, locked up cabinet, whatever, any intervention enhances recovery or diminishes long-term sequelae. So those two things, enhances recovery or diminishes long-term sequelae. We're not talking second impact here, um, post-concussion. And they conclude on the basis of the available evidence, no conclusion can be drawn regarding the effect of post-concussive activity level, cognitive or physical rest, on the recovery from sports-related concussion or the likelihood of developing chronic post-concussive. Okay, so they looked through the data and guess what they found? Nothing. <laughs> so what about impact testing? Okay, so if I, my kid has impact testing and they does that nice computerized thing, does that mean they're all better? Well, the answer is there is no evidence that when your scores have returned to some baseline that it means your brain is no longer vulnerable to another injury. What if your microtubules are still dissembled but you can function on a computerized test? It doesn't mean that you're not vulnerable. We just don't know, but people use this like it's a gold standard. So we do common sense. How about retirement? Once you do tell a kid to quit going to that sport. It's not clear whether it's the concussions at all versus the impacts. And there's hundreds to thousands of impacts in football per season. Um, repeated hits are probably not good for you. We know this from a variety of evidence, <laughs> common sense, especially, especially if you already have cognitive problems, you have ADHD, you have a learning disability, you have any of that stuff. Um, uh, or if you're going to depend on 
exquisite higher cognitive function for your college choice or career, you probably don't want to have a million hits just by common sense. And there are data, but they're not specific. You can't tell yet, we don't know yet, who's susceptible to getting dementia. That's the point of these track TBI genomic studies and imaging studies. Maybe we'll know in a decade. We don't know yet. So the bottom line is there's no clear answer to any of this. And I say that the family has to decide based on the sparse available evidence. And I refuse to clear somebody for return to play or retirement. I'll just tell them what I know and write a letter and have the discussion. I don't think I can tell. So my concussion recommendations are, are pretty simple. Don't have another impact if you still have a headache or symptoms. And that's really to decrease the risk of second impact syndrome because if you have a little subdural, you have a headache, almost certainly, okay? The evidence for physical or cognitive rest is weak. So all of you who said you didn't know, you were right. And you have to weigh the benefits of um, you know, physical activity, teamwork, all the things kids learn from sports against a potential risk. And what I tell them is that track, crew, and fencing are absolutely fantastic <laughs> sports, especially fencing. There we go. So the conclusion of my talk, and I hope we have a little time for discussion, is there's still much to learn about all forms of head injury in all ages of patients. Algorithms and classifications based on pathoanatomic type and a global input of these data from these different classification schemes will help refine our management and I think make life a lot easier. The concussion spectrum isn't fully understood, nor is its optimal management. We really don't know. You do the best you can. And finally, clinical and translational approaches may change how we do things as we learn more. So I appreciate your attention. I'd love to talk to all of you that I know and those of you I don't. And thanks so much for the time. So the question Charlene's asking is, what about cerebral perfusion pressure? What's the optimal uh, number? Here's what the data suggest. Under 40 is bad. At least this. It doesn't really suggest under 40 is bad. What it suggests, let's be very literal here. If your CPP is less than 40, that is associated with poor outcome. What isn't known is, does treating CPP and getting it above 40 influence your outcome? Or is the fact your CPP is 40 or less just mean you're sick? And no matter what you do, it isn't going to make a difference. That's the gap that still needs to be filled. So I aim for over 40 if I have a way to treat it. The whole CPP question, the cerebral oxygenation question, all of these questions is what ADAPT is designed to try to answer, because a lot of it we still don't know. But great question. We had a question here. I'm sorry. Before my colleagues in primary care step out, I'm going to offer a bit of a rebuttal on the concussion question. Don't <laughs> so, so two points. One is there are several authors who both participated in the, in the Zurich uh, guideline consensus statement and the American Academy of Neurology evidence-based guidelines. So these are well-intentioned folks, smart folks, who are doing the best they can. At the end of the day, the physical rest question ultimately, hopefully, only means you're keeping them out of sports for another week, up to three weeks, which, given how little we do know, I say better safe than sorry, ultimately, and you're not going to necessarily retire them, per se. We're not going to go into this whole cocooning. I agree that cocooning is crazy and the total, total in your house and in your room and no video games, et cetera. But I think just like you pointed out that the trials didn't show efficacy of any particular rodent's uh, intervention in traumatic brain injury. Similarly, as Mickey Collins says, we call concussion when it is probably a spectrum and we don't know what treating, what we're treating and therefore we can't really show efficacy. 
Right. So, uh, so let me rebut that just for one sec. I agree with you. I agree with you. But since I got the microphone, um, here's the deal. There is no evidence that physical activity hurts your brain. And I think what people are afraid of is the kid has got this idea that you're going to exercise your brain into ischemia and brain cell death is probably not true. And that's what's out there in the literature. So physical rest, I, I say, don't hit your head. And there is some evidence that suggests for some kids, physical activity actually improves their mood and makes them feel better. If you had a viral illness and you exercised, you might make your headache worse. It probably doesn't damage your brain. And I think the same is probably true for head injury. So it doesn't mean that physical rest is bad. It just means we really don't know whether it's good or bad for your brain. It may exacerbate your symptoms. And if it exacerbates your symptoms, don't do it. But I think some kids are so concerned about staying in shape, getting deconditioned, and so forth, that moderate physical activity may actually benefit them. And we still don't really have the answer. So I agree with you to, uh, largely. You, yeah. yeah, I think I think the idea that you can exercise your brain into brain ischemia is probably ludicrous, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, that's right. This poor person asked first. Go ahead. I like this approach. I think the other thing that you just said, Tina, that that's important is thinking about the psychological impacts of having kids out of whatever, maybe the end of the season, maybe whatever. That I mean, I actually had a football player who had to miss the end of his senior season and and became suicidal as a result of that. So those kind of things I think are not small side effects of things like that. Uh, so my question was um, the thinking about the headache um, and the um, the uh, thoughts about the potential um, for um, imaging and sort of when the threshold is. I wasn't sure if you were advocating for doing imaging sort of earlier and the kid who has a little bit of a lingering headache after. Well, you know, I'm a neurosurgeon, so so I'm biased, right? Because the kids who I see are the ones that have that, and when we get imaging, the percentage of kids we see with hemorrhages are going to be enormous yeah. compared to the percentage of kids you see with hemorrhages. But I would say if you have a kid that has an unusually persistent or severe headache, getting an early MRI is going to answer your question. And you don't have to do a 40-minute MRI. You can do a, you know, 10-minute MRI and answer that question. So I'm a, I'm a, the problem is that that conflicts with my, you know, rein in the cost of healthcare uh, side. Um, uh, I, I will comment though on your kid with the suicidal uh, ideation. Um, I was just on a panel. I am still on a panel for the CDC to come up with more concussion guidelines. So ugh, I'm like steeped in it. The single biggest predictor over and over and over for prolonged symptoms in kids with concussion is pre-morbid psychological or family stressors, the single or, or learning disabilities. That's the single strongest predictor. In fact, it's, it's, it's overwhelmingly the strongest predictor. So you had a kid that had a problem before they get a concussion. And there's this whole wave, you guys probably see this, of kids that it's like the new Lyme disease. They're out of school for six months because they had a quote unquote concussion. And really what's the problem is the kid's depressed or there's family issues. And we see that over and over. But because concussion is like, can't touch it now, the schools are in a frenzy because you know they're afraid of getting in trouble for not treating this kid's concussion seriously because the pendulum swung way over. So I, I, it's not that concussion isn't real. I, I'm not a concussion disbeliever. I just think that it's, ve it's very hard when people want answers to step back and be the one who says, you know, we really don't know yet. Let's use common sense. And that's what these Zurich and other guidelines are trying to do. On the other hand, as 
scientist physicians, we have to be careful that we don't promulgate misinformation or things that we really don't know as stuff we do know. So I think we're on the same page. So I think, I think you suggested she stay for coffee, so I think she'll stay right here for a little bit. Others of you need to get to some patients. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.